Welcome to Crime Corner, where we examine all things crime, whether it be on the page, on the screen, on the street, or in the courtroom. I'm Matt Coyle, author of the Rick Cahill Crime Series, and I'll be your host for as long as it takes. My guest tonight, and he's really here, we're really going to communicate. Carl Von Der Rohe is the author of Murderbilia, a thriller that takes place in the upper crust world of private banking. Carl grew up in a suburb of Cleveland and studied economics at Stanford University and music at San Jose State, so clearly he's a very versatile guy. He finally embarked on a career in banking, and that career enabled him to live and work in Latin America, Canada, and North Africa, and to do business in Spanish, French, and Portuguese. Carl's love of books started in elementary school, forbidden to watch TV. Only if my parents had done it to me, I'd be much further along. Forbidden to watch TV after dinner, he had his head in a book most every night. Carl's, Carl always loved to write, but never had the time to or money to do it full-time until recently. He says that fiction allows him to synthesize the seemingly contradictory parts of his life. He's also a partner in the San Diego Social Venture Partners, an organization that mentors other nonprofits to reach the next level. Carl lives with his, and I'm sorry, Carl lives with his wife in San Diego. He has two grown sons who are close by and wonder how he knows so much about serial killers and banking crimes. Welcome, Carl Vondero. Thank you, Matt. Thank you. It's so good to be here. Yeah. Uh, number two, yeah. And I appreciate you for uh, dealing with uh, the situation we had last week and coming on again. So, Murderbilia, and I Second read the book. Times the charm. Hopefully, yeah, we don't have to strike three. I read Murderbilia, uh, so I probably have a little bit of an advantage on our listeners, and it's, a, it's just a really effing good um, debut. It just comes out – you know, I think we think of our um, – our books, especially the first one, is maybe kind of our, our babies. And this thing comes out full-blown adult. Um, great book. Anyway, so tell us a little bit about Murderbilia. Well, the main character, the protagonist, his name is William McNary. And he has been hiding a secret for 31 years. And that is that uh, when he was eight years old, his father was arrested for killing 13 women and photographing his victims. Uh, his mother moved him and his sister to California, changed their name, and no one knows what his legacy is. His father, meanwhile, has the fame of a Charlie Manson or Ted Bundy. Uh, so no one in his bank knows who he is until he gets a call one day, and the caller says, I know your real name. Then the uh, killings begin looks just the way his father would have done them and the evidence begins to point at my protagonist so this um let me why this topic and do you have a locked room in the back of your house with creepy art and mementos hanging on the walls (laughs) don't tell my wife (laughs) no yeah it's a locked door no, I don't. And it, it really, the, the whole genesis of this kind of began with the what-if game. And I wanted, I was a private banker for wealthy clients, and I wondered what would be a secret that uh, I, a private banker would never reveal to anyone. So obviously a serial killer, and an infamous serial killer, whose artwork is now all over the web. So I put those those things together. And then uh, I thought, what would the perfect religion be for the wife of a serial killer? And um, I was raised a Christian scientist and with the belief that 
if I reflected God correctly, I could not only heal the illness from someone, but the evil from them as well. So I thought that would be a perfect religion for the, my char- main character's mother and wife of the serial killer. Wow. Um, I didn't really intend to go on this tangent, but I'll ask you, you – we don't have to if you don't want to, but regarding Christian science – uh, did you mm-hmm. ever have a situation w- when you were a kid or someone in your family got really sick and your parents wouldn't take them to the hospital? Well, it's one of the contradictions that all Christian scientists live with. I had a great aunt who we think got cancer, and she ended up uh, sort of holding up her in, a par- in her apartment, reading the Bible and the Christian science textbook, uh, trying to heal herself, and then she ultimately died. Without any medical intervention uh, In terms of our family We always went to doctors And oh, uh, we just didn't tell anyone At church about it right. Oh my gosh <laughs> so, so You know and, no, go ahead. I mean, the, the, the mother in this book Is far more fundamentalist Than my family ever was uh, But you know You have to be a certain kind of fundamentalist To, to live with a serial killer yeah, it probably helps. Um, so, what kind of research did you for this book? It's you know, it's not something that I mean. I think I knew of it because of uh, John Wayne Gacy's, uh, Gacy's paintings, and then of course, even Manson. But uh, how deep did you get into this? Well, there are two aspects of it. One is the children of serial killers, but what you what you're referring to, I think, is is what's called murderabilia. And this is the memorabilia produced by killers throughout history. Um, and the the more you look for it, the, the creepier it gets. Um, this artwork is sold all over the Internet and private sales as well. Uh, I saw a John Wayne Gacy painting of his house complete with the crawl spaces. Uh, oh. It's at $175,000. Did he paint um, the one with Ted the crawl space? Yeah, he painted one with the oh, crawl space. because I thought he just so painted he, clowns. Yeah. Oh, my God. He, yeah, the clowns are worth a lot of money, too. He's sort of oh. a Van Gogh of murderabilia. Oh, um, yeah, and um, he, as well as, you know, Charlie Manson painted a lot of uh, yeah. psychedelic artwork, swastikas. Uh, there actually somebody purchased a uh, swastika made of Charlie Manson's hair. Is uh, it, it just gets creepier though the more you look at it. Um, Ted Bundy's glasses I saw listed at seventy five thousand um, dollars. You know uh, Hitler, one of his watercolors was sold in Germany for about four hundred and fifty thousand dollars. So there is this market that is out there and the web just seems to have amplified it and coordinated with uh, with people and I'll you've bet. got dealers who who then will go to prisons and they will find killers and say you know have you ever thought about doing artwork oh my and God. Uh, yeah yeah they'll kind of nurture these killers uh, to produce works of art which are you know really mediocre if not bad but because of their fame as killers, then the dealers, when they're gifted these things, can go out and sell them. Wow. 
So what kind of research, you, you said it's two-pronged, what kind of research did you do on the uh, children of serial killers? Well, what I found there was um, there are a few people that have written books about it. Uh, BTK, which was Dennis yeah. Rader, his bind, torture, and kill. He killed people in Kansas. His daughter came out with a book recently, Carrie Rawson. Um, there was another uh, daughter of the Happy Face killer, Keith Jesperson. Her name's Melissa Moore. She came out earlier with a book on what it was like to grow up with him. Um, and then plus the net, you know, you research on the net. Uh, Charlie Manson had a son uh, who has now come out and is kind of living secretly. Um, Ted Bundy had a daughter, and nobody knows what her name is now or where she lives. Mm. But what I found was that there's a very human side to all of this, and that's when their fathers were arrested. These poor kids, their lives were just shattered. Uh, it was as if everything before the arrest was a lie. Yeah. Uh, suddenly they were, they were, uh, they were um, outcasts in their communities. Everyone thought certainly their mother should have known, and even kids, you know, you should have known. How could you not know? How could you not suspect something? Which you know lead led up. Them to uh, to think the same thing themselves. I mean, there's a lot of guilt here of, well, all those inconsequential things that you didn't pay attention to in the past now become highly significant. Like uh, Keith Jesperson's uh, daughter, her brother found a roll of duct tape in the cab of his truck, which didn't seem to mean anything at the time. Um, Fred and Rose. Let's see, the, the English, Fred and Rose West, that's who they are. Um, they used to lock their kids in the basement, and then they'd hear these strange noises going on upstairs. Yeah, yeah, so um, as you can imagine, it just, it just takes apart your life, and then you have to shield your own children from what their grandfather has done and the legacy of all of that, plus... You think, you know, what if I'm carrying a gene for this kind of violence? Or, and I guess, to me, the most difficult thing, the thing I explore a lot in the book is, how can I love a monster like that? All these kids still love their fathers. Right. So, I think that is, that is is, uh, so ripe for, um, you know, to examine is what, and what you do, although the book, uh, Murabilia, revolves around a serial killer, the book's core is really about family dynamics, and I was wondering why did you choose to examine family through such a terrifying lens? Um, it's the most extreme lens, and it brings out you know the most extreme dynamics in a family. Um, I found that that was the most interesting part to to really delve into, rather than just the killings. Yeah, and. Uh... It's really well done that the whole, the whole, the family, you know, cause there's a couple generations really, you know, there's, um, the protagonist and his kids and, and having to deal with, and then, you know, it's a, when, um, some of this stuff comes out, some people didn't, you know, kids aren't going to know about their grandfather. There's another thing that it's, I found interesting is that photography plays a huge role in memorabilia. And to this uninformed reader, you seem to really know a lot about the subject. Is photography one of your passions? Or just you just research it. 
Oh, good. It worked. <laughs> oh, good. Way to go. No, got, well, it's, like I said, I'm unintelligent about it. No, yeah. Well, I actually didn't know much about photography at the time. And um, Harvey Gladman was a famous serial killer who took pictures of his victims and then he killed them. Um, and I thought about that, and I put the photography in, and an initial agent said, look, you haven't developed the photography side of this. You've got to do it. So I took some photography courses and bought some books and uh, tried to get myself up to speed as much as I could on it. Um, and, and it references some fairly famous photographers. There's Robert Frank, who kind of revolutionized photography with some black and white photos in the 60s called The Americans. And one of those photos is at the center of the book. There's a Man Ray photograph. Um, the, the Man Ray photograph is a woman with her head on the side uh, and her hand around a mask. Um, it's staged a little differently in the book. Uh, yeah. But Harvey Dean Kogan, you know, he he uh, he is a, a true artist in terms of following photography. Um, his moniker, the Praying Hands, is from an Albrecht Durer painting uh and that's very famous it's it's called the praying p-r-a-y-i-n-g hands and it's of one of the apostles uh where the hands are up in prayer and you can just see the sleeves of his shirt and uh, this is the way that harvey dean coven staged some of the hands of his victims and therefore he became known as the praying hands p-r-e-y-i-n-g hands so the photography forms, and if you know you get more and more into it, um, you can see that William, the, the protagonist, had to come to terms with that. His father was only a black and white photographer, and William, you know, seeing all these photographs and trying to get away with it and trying to control the narrative of his own life, he decides that he is going to make his own story out of photography and becomes a photojournalist and takes only colored photos. Um, which has some unfortunate consequences for it. Right. Well, there's a scene later in the book, and I'm not going to give anything away, where that that whole dynamic of the father-son photography thing is really interesting and really handled well. And, and William has to kind of look at himself a little bit, which is, of course, I love that kind of stuff. So you took the well-worn yeah. route. Well-worn, well-worn conventional route of econ major to music major to banker before you landed on crime lighting. How the hell did that happen? <laughs> well, I don't know, you know, parental expectations to some extent. And, um, I mean, I told, I've always told stories. I can remember when I was in fourth grade, I told uh, ghost stories all the time. And uh, one was so scary that it kept one of my classmates up the whole night. Uh, and I've, I've looked back on that and, and, and have decided I'll never get a better review than that. <laughs> but, um uh, so I always, you know, like to do stories, et cetera. Um, but then, you know, I went to college and um, I wanted to be more practical. So I studied economics and studied in Latin America, kind of went that route. And then I had always wanted to be a musician and write songs. I was going to be uh, uh, the next uh, the next great folk singer, right? And uh, turned out that wasn't going to be the case. So I guess I've always been uh, drawn to different things. Did I somehow think or read or you told me – were you classically trained on the guitar, classical guitar, or – I was. 
Yeah, I was. Um, I uh, I took classical guitar when I was young, and then it kind of went into folk. And then when I studied for a year of music at San Jose State, I studied classical guitar again. Um, I never really had uh, the technical expertise to, to make a go of it. Um, and plus, I, I soon found out I didn't have nearly the ears of some of those people that were studying music. So I would think that being a musician would give you some advantage in writing. Is there some connection between the two? Not necessarily writing songs, but uh, playing music. Um, I think it gives me a um, a good appreciation of dialogue and voice because I tend to uh, write my scenes mostly dialogue first, and I hear it more than I see it. Um, and then I fill in a lot of the visual details later. Um, so I, I think, you know, that musicality in the language sort of comes from the, the ear from the guitar. I have, have a good ear for languages, too, so my accents tend to be okay. Um, I, I think all that bleeds into the writing. Now, I mentioned earlier that I, I have – I've read the book, and uh, I also have the advantage that uh, Carl and I are in a writer's group together – We've been in one for five months or so, but he wrote um, Murderbilia uh, long before he joined our group, and I know you're in another writer's, writer's group, but I was wondering how, what the process was like for you, and how long was it from writing first lines out on a computer to acceptance for publication? Endless. <laughs> well, generally. It's <laughs> Yeah, it was. Uh, it took me, I guess, four years to write the book. Um, uh, I had this idea, but it took me a long time to develop it. Um, I I went to a writers' conference, and through there, I got involved in another writers' group uh, with writers that were better than I was, and so I really progressed from that, particularly from the side of character and character development. Um, so. They really helped me tremendously. The other side of it is that um, I, at a writers' conference, I met Jacqueline Michard, and she wrote "Deep End of the Ocean," which was the first pick of Oprah. Yeah. She made millions of dollars on this. There was a movie made out of it with Michelle Pfeiffer in it, and she became the victim of a financial scam, such that she really needed another way to earn money. Uh, so she was editing uh, for people like me. So I worked with her a couple of years on this book and learned an incredible amount through that as well, particularly on structure. Um, she, you know, for instance, said, well, she came up with the idea of the praying hands moniker. And, oh, really? you know, she said, yeah, yeah, she did. And um, the backstory on Harvey Dean Kogan, you know, she said, no, you've got to have a backstory. He can't be just a, a sociopath. He's got to have a backstory. So that all came out of that um, in terms of pacing um, and where the flashbacks went within the scenes uh, and, and even really tightening up some of the, some of the writing itself. She was, she was very helpful. What an advantage. Uh, so let me see. I went down a tangent there. So how long did it take? Uh, it took it took you know four years or so, and then um, I had an agent in New York 
Um, and he took me on. Um, he was one of the founders of a fairly major agency there. I worked with him for a year, and then he decided I was not the right agent, or that I was that he was not the right agent for me. Oh, nice. So we had to part. Yeah, yeah, it was. Um, <laughs> it was an experience. Let's just put it as that. Uh, the day after my birthday, but uh, uh-huh. so, but you know, in the end, though, the book became better. Right. Uh, because of the feedback I got there, and and for a while it became worse, and then it became better, and uh, so I had to go out and find another agent. Uh, I went to the San Francisco. Well, first of all, I went to a pitch conference, uh, Al Gonkian pitch conference in New York City, and learned just how to boil my book down to a paragraph and then a single sentence. That was <laughs> that was different. Uh, and then I went to San Francisco Writers Conference and put all that to work there. And uh, I was in this cocktail party with all these agents and editors. And this woman turns to me and she says, "Okay, describe your book in one sentence." So <laughs> you were ready. I had it. I was ready. <laughs> I was ready. <laughs> give the give the log yeah. line because it's very good. So um, a private banker for the very wealthy has his life torn apart when he's accused of being a serial killer like his father. So All right, send me a full. Send you a full? What do you mean? Send me a full manuscript. I mean, that's a, that's a, hit, that's a home run. Yeah, yeah. Well, and, you know, and only a, a wannabe writer would get excited about this. After I said the sentence, the agent and the editor next door said, ooh, <laughs> Only a writer would get goose pimples from that. <laughs> so, I'm doing just t- tangentially. Yeah. <laughs> so she ended up becoming my agent, uh, Michelle Richter from Fuse Literary. Oh. And uh, then, then you know, then it took a while to get a publisher to publish the book. Um, <laughs> Mid- uh, Midnight Inc. Uh, became the publisher, and then as soon as I signed the contract, two, two months later, I learned that they were closing its, their doors. Yeah. So, so um, but they, but Llewellyn, their parent, has been supportive, and they've gotten books to you know the various venues I need. So, it's been good. Well, my let me rule, tell you. Though, my, I'm sorry. Go ahead. My rule in all of this is that um, tenacity is more important than talent. No and, you know, after you've after you've been writing for thirty years, you know, and finally get your first book published, it it's really a truism. But I find that I'm I'm far from the only one where this has happened oh. to. I mean, it's really yeah. quite common. Yeah, and yeah. I think it's a, you made a, a great point about uh, tenacity is more important than talent because talent can always catch up or generally catch up to some degree. But let me tell you, with regarding Midnight Inc., you are not their last book published. I know, I'm going to have a guest on, a former Buffalo uh, homicide cop named Lisa Redmond. She's done her third book with uh, Midnight is coming out in – I think it's actually September. I'm having her on on the 23rd of this month, but she is the final so we'll see what happens with her. But wow, uh, wow, yeah. Well, there's a certain status for being the last one, you know. That's right. You didn't kill them alone, so you just shouldn't feel too badly about that. <laughs> and I killed four well, golf companies in ten years. So, um, so as I said, <laughs> I've read Murder Billy. It's really good, 
and it is a high bar. And I'm wondering if you feel any pressure putting out such a good first book, the book you're now writing to get, you know, to maybe raise the bar or get back to that bar. Or go to the bar and have a drink. Well, you, well, you know, it, it, at one point I didn't think I was going to get published when I started on the other books, so there was no pressure right. there. I thought, well, I better start on another one. Um, and I think you just try and get better. Um, I don't feel that much pressure yet. Um, you know, uh, I'm just trying to keep progressing. And in the book I'm working on now, it's another family-oriented crime story where instead of a son with a very difficult father, serial killer, I've got a father with a very difficult son. And the father, to save his son, has to become involved with a sketchy bag. So we'll see if it works. Well, it's working. I'm, I'm reading it in group, so it's working. Um, so now you said that in the bio it said that you finally quit your day job to write full-time. What is your writing – your right, not necessarily writing process or either writing process and writing schedule like now that you have this supposed free time? Yeah, yeah, supposed in quotation marks, you know. Um, it's, it's all over the board, really. I have a specific time that I write, but I'm writing every day, and I'm fitting it in with other things. Um, you know, I exercise at the Y. So I often will do an early morning exercise and then go write. Uh, right now, because uh, I'm trying to publicize this book so much, I'm spending a lot of time on social media and trying to get out and get the word out for the book. Um, I don't know. At some point, I think it would be really good. I've, I've heard of uh, like William uh, Kent Kruger. Um, he writes like at 6 a.m. in the morning till 10 o'clock every single day. I think it would be really good to have that kind of schedule. Mm-hmm. So maybe eventually I do that, but uh, right now I just kind of fit it in and fit it in along with everything else. Well, I think the important thing is writing every day. And when William Kent Kruger is on the road, you know, he's on a road promoting a book. <clears throat> he may not be able to write from six to ten. Maybe he has to do it at certain times, or if he's on a plane, what have you. But <clears throat> although I know he is pretty strict to his schedule, so an author's voice is that hard to define but recognizable thing that all good writers have probably more difficult to establish than standalones, I think. Um, so you clearly have one in this book, actually both books that, I, that I'm, one I read and one I'm reading. How do you think, how long do you think it took to develop a voice, your voice? It took a long time. Uh, you have to get so deep into the protagonist that his voice becomes clear. Um, it's it's clearly a somewhat cynical banker's voice, but it's also a voice with holds, and uh, and then gradually reveals. Um, it's a voice that has kind of a cynical take on things, uh, but underneath there has to be um, a, a degree of of of, um, of genuineness. So I don't I, I don't. That answer your question? No, but that's that's why the voice is so hard. No, that answer the question. It's something you can't really put yeah. your finger on. Um, no, you okay, can't. So you said you've intimated that it's really been thirty years since you were writing. Obviously, not full time, but now you're a published author. Your book, first book, just came out. I know you're doing 
done some conferences and you're doing some media and you're doing some signings. How's it feel? Uh, it, uh, <laughs> it, a lot of it is fun, but it also feels like a lot of work. Right. <laughs> so, because, you know, you, there are 12,000 things you should have done that you haven't done. Yeah. And uh, so... So there's that kind of pressure because it's you know it's your debut novel and you're never a debut novel, author again. So right. you want to do everything you can to get it out there and it's and it's and have it look its best. Well, I think you're well on your way to doing that. So we met we bre- touched briefly upon your charitable work. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, I've uh, my my father was actually not a serial killer. <laughs> he, uh, yeah, yeah. He uh, he was very involved with the Y. He owned a small company, sold it, and spent the last thirty years of his wife volunteering for the YMCA. Um, did a lot of work in Russia, and Spain, and Europe. Um, so I kind of came out of that tradition that the Y was important. So when I got to San Diego, um, I had been working with the Y. For about ten years, and particularly the Mission Valley Y, I, I was on their board, and then I chaired their board, and then then I I helped the Y in San Diego establish some international partnerships. So been doing a lot of that, and I decided I needed to change. So I have since joined Social Venture Partners, and we're a group of volunteers who not only give money to uh, nonprofits, but we give our expertise as well. So what we do is we will ment- we will pick out a couple of them uh, every year, give them a grant for some money, and then we will mentor them so they can improve their board development or their strategic planning or their messaging or all the infrastructure that helps the nonprofit kind of rise to the next level. Uh, one of those uh, should, is called uh, Traveling Stories, and uh, I've been working with them. Um, what they are doing is it's really neat. Um, they are setting up story tents around libraries, even in bars, uh, where parents bring their kids, and the kids get one-on-one instruction on reading, or they read with people and learn to enjoy reading. Uh, then they get book books after each book they finish, which they can trade in for toys. So... Um, yeah, it is cool. It's, they're they're expanding in San Diego, and uh, they may be expanding across the country. They're looking at franchising this kind of model. And what we're going to do, Matt, uh, you as well as Susan Meisner and Kathy Cravat uh, and I, we're doing a fundraiser for them at Catapult Books uh, a week from tomorrow. Uh, we're right. donating some children's. We're donating some children's books that they can use in their work, and then we are going to be reading from some books, and you'll be happy to know I will not be reading from Murderabilia. I'm disappointed. Um, <laughs> so I'd have some unhappy parents there. Uh, yep. We're reading for these kids, and uh, we're going to read our favorite children's stories, um, plus try and raise some money for them. So it'll be fun. It should be fun. I'm looking forward to it. So we talked a little bit about, uh, as we wind down, your next book, you gave us a little bit of a synopsis, but do you have a um, calendar date on that, on when you want to be done, when you want to get it to your agent, and then see what happens? 
Yeah, I've got kind of a draft with it, but it needs a lot of work, which, you know, Murderabilia I wrote more than 20 times. Right. So, you know, um, the book is never done. It's just it's just kind of shipped off. Um, I hope to uh, have a good draft uh, sometime this fall. So you mentioned the uh, thing we're doing, a book catapult, the charitable fun thing where I'm going to read Dr. Seuss. Uh, what Any other events coming up people should know about? Yeah, I do. Um, I will be at um, – well, we mentioned the fundraiser for Traveling Stories at Book Catapult a week from Saturday at 3 o'clock. Um, I will be at the Union Tribune Festival of Books at their book table there with other authors at Liberty Station. That's on August 24th. Um, let's see, I'll be doing an author event with two other authors in Austin, Texas um, on September 9th. Uh, doing people. another one in Boston. Sorry? Book people in, book uh, people. in uh, Austin, yeah. That's right, thank you. I'll be doing another one at Bookends in Boston on September 11th. Uh, I and some other officers will be talking about the behind-the-scenes of crime writing at a panel at Southern California Writers Conference in Irvine on September 20th. So, you know, a few things going on, yeah. Well, you're working it. So where can listeners find you on the World Wide Web? Well, they can find uh, me on Facebook. It's author Carl Vonderow. You spell Vonderow out? Oh, yeah, sorry. And Carl's with a C, C A R L, and Vondero V Victor, O N D E R A U. Um, I've also got a website, CarlVondero.com. I'm on Twitter, Carl Vondero, and Instagram, Carl Vondero. So there you are. You are now a social media maven. <laughs> you weren't always. <laughs> well, I'm not. I'm trying to get better at it, right? I'm, and I'm yes. more active on Twitter and more on Instagram. Yes. I've got a whole series of uh, of articles I've published on my website about called Creativity Tips for the Left Brainer. I'm a fairly analytical guy, and most of us analytical bankers think that we can't be creative, and it's absolutely untrue. So I've got some tips on how to do that. And I'm also just started a series on the website on what is murderabilia and is it as bad as I think it is? Uh, it is. Yep. <laughs> and, uh, you know, it, it is, that's going to be on Thriller Thursday. So I'm, I'm, I'm out there. Cool. Well, Carl, thanks for being a good sport about uh, our little technical difficulties last week and coming back on. Uh, enjoyed the talk, and of course I'll see you tomorrow at the at the uh, writers group. But uh, thanks again for coming on. I have to tell the people out there that Murderabilia is one of the best debuts I read in a long time. Really good book. Creepy, good. Well, thank you, thank you, you so bet, much. Man. That means a lot to me. All right, you bet. All right, take care, right. man. You too. All right, uh, next week because uh, we're going back to back next week. On Crime Corner, August 9th, I'm going to have New York Times bestseller C.J. Box, who will discuss his latest books, The Bitter Roots. Really looking forward to that. Chuck is a really cool guy, as everybody knows. Also, if you're in a book club and would like an author to answer questions and talk about his work, I'd love to talk to you. You can find my email address on my website, MacCoyleBooks.com. 
So we'll see you next week, or we'll hear you next week, or you'll hear me. This is a copyrighted trademark podcast owned solely by the Authors on the Air Global Radio Network. Talk to you soon.